Parliament prorogued and the Chancellor planning his spending. But can the government keep its promise of more money for defence? Cruising the Meds, where is that Iranian oil tanker now? And the battle group on the prairie, what happens at Batas? You know, we deliver the most complex and largest ranges in the British Army. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. There is usually a summer pause in the UK's politics. It has barely been a pause this year, but it has ended spectacularly this week. Boris Johnson's decision to temporarily suspend Parliament and have a new Queen's speech is, he says, about getting to work on his domestic agenda. And as part of that, the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has been planning how much money government departments will get next year. He will announce the results next week. So what's at stake for defence in all this? A question I put to the Deputy Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Malcolm Chalmers. On the face of it, I don't think much is at stake for defence because unlike most government departments, defence already has a budget for next financial year fixed. It was agreed in the in the 2015 spending review. So uh, the my expectation would be they would get... Uh, the money they were promised then, they'll get a bit extra to account for some changes in pension valuations, uh, because if not, that would, would be a big cut. And they'll probably get a bit of extra money if Dreadnought uh, continues to spend more uh, than was previously anticipated. And then uh, basically it will be status quo and what the MOD is already planning for. If they get significant more money above that, I think that would be a welcome surprise. If they get significantly less than that, then that would be a pretty serious indication that defence was being deprioritised by this administration compared with the last, which again I think is unlikely. Under Theresa May, we saw an extra 1.8 billion of, of one-off spending that simply allowed defence to stay still and stave off cuts. Does defence need more money to stave off cuts going into the next budget round? Well, most of the that extra 1.8 billion for the last two years was specifically in relation to overrun on the dreadnought program, bringing spending forward uh, rather than spending it later in the program. And I would expect if a similar case can be made by the MOD for next year, then uh, the Treasury will listen to that case and will probably concede it because that's a one-off, at least in theory, it's bringing spending forward rather than uh, agreeing to additional spending. And importantly, it's not part of the MOD's baseline. I think the MOD will have a harder time getting money in addition to that, simply because uh, their programmes are are overrunning, but it's possible the Treasury will concede. We'll we'll, we'll watch that uh, with interest. But I think one of the things about the 2020-21 budget Uh, is that it is a significant real terms increase uh, over this financial year. The 2015 spending review for defence was pretty backloaded, so quite a good increase towards the end and not much of an increase in the first couple of years. Uh, So the Treasury, I think, will say, well, you're you're not doing badly in, in the context of other government departments and we'll just stick to that settlement, which will leave the MOD still comfortably above 2% of GDP and still having real terms increases. 
In Sajid Javid's article in the Telegraph setting out his priorities, policing was in there, schools were in there, hospitals were in there. Has defence slipped to be a bit of a Cinderella at the moment? I don't think defence is a Cinderella in the sense that uh, since 2015 they've had this commitment uh, to maintain 2% and the accompanying commitment to 0.5% real terms increase. And while the former is to some extent subject to some accounting adjustments, shall we say, politely, uh, the latter is not. So the MOD is actually getting some uh, small but nevertheless significant real terms increases. So that places the MOD now, I think, more or less in the middle of the pecking order. It's not doing as well as the NHS, which is clearly uh, uh, the top priority and has been for a long time. But it's not one of the many other departments which I suspect uh, may get real terms spending cuts next week. We shall see what the spending review produces. Lots of uh, steady or slowly growing uh, government budgets across the board, in addition to significant uh, chunky increases for health and schools and police, just doesn't add up. Uh, And uh, the Treasury has been making it clear today they will stick to the previous Chancellor's uh, budget deficit uh, assumptions, which which means this is, it may be a rather more generous spending review than others. It will certainly be billed as such, but the reality is it's still a pretty tight spending settlement uh, it, going into the uncertainty which Brexit is likely to produce. Professor Malcolm Chalmers. Well, I'm joined now by a trio of defence analysts, Francis Tisa, Professor Michael Clark, and of course our own Christopher Lee. Francis, let's start with you. You've been busy on Twitter over the last 24 hours comparing defence spending with what else it could buy. Let's start with the, the, the F-35. You say it could buy a thousand nurses for three years. Yes, and the whole point about this comparison is not saying we should necessarily cut loads of the defence programme. It's what is being talked about in Whitehall uh, as regards where money should go. We have heard there is going to be more money for NHS. We have heard commitments that teacher salaries should go to £30,000 basic. We have heard the commitments to recruit 20,000 extra police. These are all Uh, and I know political commitments can be changed, but note there have been no commitments in the current government, uh, let alone the one under Theresa May, for massive amounts more uh, money for defence. And if if I can just uh, pick you up on your introduction when you said pledges to increase defence spending, I haven't seen any pledges to increase defence spending. (laughs) There is the double double lock that, that they are still committed to, which is to meet the NATO... 2%, 2%, but also, and this is this is the George Osborne thing from 2015, to uh, increase defence spending in real terms by half a percent a year. Okay, two, two things. The 2% is such a false figure. It's including bits of overseas aid spending. It's including bits of, like, world service and so forth. So the, the 2% meeting that is, is a false figure straight off. We are not spending 2% of GDP on anything that could be classified seriously as defence, even including things like, uh, including GCHQ, absolutely fine, and so forth. Uh, 0.5% increase, um, which George Osborne went into, bearing in mind the problems the armed forces have recruiting and retaining personnel, um, that is not helping. And by the way, defence inflation, which is, is slash was an accepted Treasury figure is running at closer to 3.8%. So 0.5% real increase 
The MOD isn't even treading water. It's going backwards or drowning. Uh, Mike Clark, how concerned do you think people will be in the Ministry of Defence about this spending review, and but maybe more concerned about what, what lies beyond it? Yes, I don't think uh, they'll be so concerned about the review that uh, the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, is like likely to come out with for the reasons that Malcolm uh, Chalmers mentioned that a lot of it is already locked in till 2020 2021 but as Francis makes the point very well that doesn't mean to say that that if there won't be cuts in defense there there, there might be modest modest increases just in the normal course of events but we've still got to ask ourselves are we spending enough on defense given the Uh, ambitions that we have for it and most of us in the business of analyzing it say no we're not so we've either got to reduce our ambitions fairly considerably or agree somehow that we're going to spend more on defense and other aspects of foreign affairs so tactically i don't think the mod will be so bothered about what's going to happen in the next few months from their own point of view but strategically yes they are bothered and they think about it a lot there's not much they can do about it though because governments are completely locked into brexit and the possibilities of recession when we come out and all of their spending will really go on, as Francis said, on health and on anti-recession policies, things that will hold the economy up through what is bound to be a very rocky few months or two or three years, whatever happens. Christopher Lee, we are, a lot of people think, likely to have an election in a matter of months. What does that mean for defence? Does that mean defence gets pushed to the sidelines, or does it depend on the current political defense, climate? Defence never gets defence never gets into the uh, in, into the into the into the, into the uh, uh, general election, does it? Not in those senses, unless unless there are some issues, such as whether you're going to close down someone like I don't know, someone like Devonport or whatever. I think that anybody who's sitting there with a defence calculator ought to be remembering what we're doing at the moment, this whole idea of uh, Brexit. And if you look at where quite a lot of good um, financial institutions and economic institutions are saying that we're going to, this country is going to be in difficulties or it's going to find, find times testing over the next, let's say, five, ten years, then start thinking in those senses because if you've got, as the, the governor of the bank said, very, very real possibility for an 8% reduction in the economy, then people are going to start to look, maybe look at some of Francis's figures, you know, for the, what do you say, Francis, one type 26, cost of 750 million, so you can get a medium-sized NH hospital for that. Those sort of issues may, uh, plus, may be headlines. Plus the operating costs. Plus the operating costs. So it's, over- not, it's not just buying, it's also operating. I've tried to put that into all the figures yeah. because it's, it's too easy and facile to say, you can get 3,000 nurses. Yeah. Yes, for how many how many years? I mean, this, and, and this uh, is the issue. And this is one of the things that that, that you get with, with with the way the defence budgets are, are built up. Those equipment programmes are not just building and buying, but also maintaining and operating. Uh, Francis, I wanted to ask you. You know, we actually defence got taken out of austerity earlier than other government departments. We still saw Theresa May's government having to inject a, a $1.8 billion or so over her time just to stave off any further cuts. Can, if, if it is a steady as she goes spending round for the MOD, how will the programmes look? Will they be able to continue as they are? Well, the $1.8 billion was the equivalent of an emergency blood transfusion because the patient was bleeding out. 
Um, we focus, I say we, analysts, <clears throat> tend to focus on the equipment plan black hole, which is 14 billion maximum, according to the National Audit Office. There are black holes in the defense estate. There are black holes in the defense nuclear program and the defense nuclear estate. Um, I've done some work on this. I will come up with a conservative view that in the next 15 years, there are black holes across those ones of 25 to 30 billion pounds. Um, if you have an MOD budget that just says steady as she goes, basically the patient continues to bleed out. I tell you, I'll give you something else then for 15 years. Um, I think that within 15 years, much earlier than that, the British defence system has got to be asking a much more basic question is, are we planning to do the wrong things with the defence that we can actually establish? And should we be rethinking what we do? In other words, you go back to the minister, go back to the government and you say, what do you want us to do with the defence? What do you want defending? And we will probably change the way and the style of defence that we have, say, 15 years from now. Which takes us I, into I the realms only, of defence reviews. I can only reviews. completely agree. Uh, Fran- I can only completely agree. Francis Tusa, thank you for your time today. Christopher and Mike, stay with us. Still ahead, life on the prairie. We talked to Commander Battus about how he trains the British Army in Canada. And going underground, 80 years since Churchill's war bunker was set up under Whitehall. Now, cast your mind back to July. A Royal Marine detachment captures an oil tanker, the Grace One. The ship was on its way from Hormuz, fully laden and supposedly heading for Syria. Two weeks ago, the ship that the Gibraltar court ruled should be released. A third party bought the oil and the ship's name was changed from Grace One to Adrian Daria One. And now it seems to be wandering around the Mediterranean looking for a port. Last we looked online, she was north of Cyprus, but had just changed direction. Uh, let's go back to Professor Michael Clark. Is this more than just a story about a ship? Uh, it's a lot more than a story about a ship because this was the first element in what became this sort of mini crisis um, where the Stenner Imperio was uh, was seized by the Iranians and they still have it of course and they still have the crew uh, in uh, um, uh, Bandar Abbas uh, and the the idea was that the, the Grace One now the Adrian Daria One was released on the assumption that the Iranians would ultimately release the Stenner Imperio and it would de-escalate this tanker war which the Iranians are not conducting yet but they're threatening they're doing enough to indicate to the international community that they're prepared to to start a tanker war uh, with all of the dangers that that would involve and if this if the Adrian Daria one now turns out not to honor the pledge the Iranians made that it was not taking oil in defiance of EU sanctions to Syria if it if it now diverts to Syria, which it looks as if it could, because it's been denied a port in Greece, been denied, I think, port facilities throughout Turkey, unless they change their minds. If it ends up in Syria, then the Iranians will have pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. And because it was two or three weeks ago, the world will have moved on. And Britain in particular will look extremely foolish. Um, it's possible that the uh, Adrian Dalia one will simply have to turn around get some of its own fuel from somewhere, actually refuel itself or get refueled while it's at sea, which is not that easy for civilian tankers, and steam 
back across the Mediterranean somewhere else. So we've not seen the end of it yet. Christopher, do you have any idea where it, it, it might be headed and, and how long it can continue this dance at sea? It was on a course in north, that roughly northeast uh, up to about an hour ago. And then if you uh, uh, track it, it's turned around. And so what it's getting is orders on the hour of where it should be, trying to find a port. You need a port for a ship that size for two reasons. One, if you want to unload the cargo. It's a lot of oil on that, crude on that. There's two, two million barrels of crude on that ship. That's enough to feed the United Kingdom's demand for oil for two days. It's quite remarkable. But there's another side of it. You look at the size of that tanker. There are not many berths, uh, oil berths in, in Syria that actually could... Uh, could take it. I think what it's looking for is something else. You can go into a North Af- one of the North African ports, perhaps, or stand off it, and you cross-load. You put uh, the oil into, uh, say, two or three tankers, right. and then you take it from where you want to do it, or you sell it separately, because somebody's actually bought the oil that's in that ship. Now, here's the problem. Here's this huge problem. Nobody wants to get up the frocks of the Americans on this. Uh, nobody wants to sort of say, look, we'll, we'll defy the Americans who say not only do they want uh, want the oil, but they don't want anybody else to have it. And that is the important thing. I guess, Mike Clark, that's why uh, other countries like Greece don't want to get involved. I mean, it, it, mm. this is this is kind of a you know an indicator of a, this is an on the ground indicator of complex international relations has, has g7 and the the surprise uh, arrival of the iranian foreign minister has, has that smoothed things at all no not yet it's left everything in the air because i mean where we are at the moment g7 was a very good example of this there is no uh, consensus in the world people say that you know it's terrible leadership that's a matter of opinion of course but undoubtedly leaders don't agree with each other so there's no overall sense of management you know the big guys the big players in the playground are not going to sort these things out and while that is the case while there's this lack of consensus it means that relatively small issues like this particular ship like like incidents that happen shooting down of aircraft or of, of drones being shot down, they can suddenly escalate right up the the crisis ladder I mean, because it, there's nothing to stop them, and that's the danger that we're in at the moment throughout the Middle East. Is it actually part of an Iranian strategy driving a, a wedge between the US and, and and its natural allies in in Europe, Christopher? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what they're trying to do is get as much benefit out of the situation as they, as they can. They're not in a particularly strong situation. The sanctions, American sanctions and EU sanctions, have really hurt them. Um, the, the collapse of the nuclear deal or the American pulling out of the deal has also been a real problem internally to Iran because the hardliners are now in the ascendant. Um, and they're, they're looking for every opportunity they can find to hold on to the position that they were in. And the Americans think one more push and we've got them one more push and there'll be some sort of regime change in Iran. I think the Americans are wrong about that, but I'm certain that that's what they think in the White House. Briefly, Christopher. And the rest of us it's, in the world have got to kind of live with that uncertainty. It's a very small point uh, It's going to take more, uh, more attention. Greece is the world's tanker uh, home. It controls about a quarter of all global tanker fleets. When you ship oil, you don't necessarily ship it in your own uh, ships. You you actually charter an oil tanker to put it in. The Greece tanker fleet and the tanker business and the charter business is taking a big hit on this. And this is when Greece has to decide whether or not it's going to uh, oppose uh, America 
on, on this policy because it's not just a question of saying, right, with this one tanker floating around the Mediterranean, other tankers are not going to Hormuz where 25% of world, world oil comes from. Uh, Professor Mike Clark, thank you for joining us and talking uh, through this today. Christopher, stay with us. We're going to go next to Canada. Batis, the British Army's training unit there. Soldiers have been put through their paces on the sparse prairie of Alberta since 1972. Our reporter, Sean Grezcheck, has been to see what goes on there and she spoke to the commander of Batis, Colonel Mark Elwood. We're here to train battle groups, we're here to train them against a, a near-peer threat and we're here to do high-intensity warfighter training. Um, we've got the space here to do it, um, we've got the kit here to do it. Um, you know, we deliver the most complex um, and largest ranges in the British Army. Um, there's no better place to do what we do at the moment um, and it prepares people extremely well for what they may face going on when on to readiness sort of later on this year. And can you just uh, take us through, you were sort of telling us earlier off camera about the fact that it's completely free airspace as well. Can you just explain that and why that's so useful? Yeah, so so I've, I've, we've got a massive training area here. I mean, it's about 1,700 square kilometres of useful training space, which is huge. But we also own the vertical airspace as well. So there's no aircraft allowed onto, over the top of this area, so it means we can do real-time airspace deconfliction. Um, with fires and movement of aircraft and we've got some American aircraft supporting us on this exercise we've got our own aircraft we've got UAS flying we've got we've got the full gambit flowing and so it does mean that we can practice and train at real-time pace without any interference or need to go to civil aviation authorities for clearance and in, in terms of people that don't really know anything about Batis um, what would you say to anyone who was sort of wondering well you know why do we have a base here in Canada and why is it in Canada um, well, we go back to, I mean, 1970, uh, when did we arrive here? 72, I think it was. Um, so we've been here 46, 47 years now. Um, we came here in, in the depths of the Cold War. So it was a great place to be, this side of the Atlantic, where our, where our partners are on key allies are, and, and a good way away from uh, any dangers to be able to prepare a force, to be able to then launch it back into wherever the fight might be. And I think that condition still survives today. But look around you. This is why we're here. The one thing we don't have in the United Kingdom is a, a, a huge amount of space. So the sheer scale and volume and scale, well, just, just, just the area that we've got here allows us to be able to manoeuvre at pace and at full scale. Now, there are other places in the world that you could do that. You know, we've been training in Oman where we've got a huge amount of space as well. Um, and we're looking for places to do a lot of training in Europe. But the beauty of this place is we've got a fantastic arrangement with our Canadian allies. They give us so much freedom here and it's just a fantastic place to set the foundation of training such that we can then go forward into Europe and really characterise the training according to that environment. What can you do here that you can't do in the UK? Uh, we can do all of this at the same time. So it, it's, it's about the ability to actually combine all the elements of, of, the, of the force. So, in the UK, we're still able to do the special-to-arm training, but we come here where we can deploy the whole lot and really bring the combined arms element together, where each of those individual parts actually come together as an orchestra and actually work and operate live as a combined arm capability. How important are exercises like these? Well, I think it's critical. There's a lot more we can do in the simulation environment, and I don't think we should ever discount one. It's not an either-or. I think simulation has its place, but I think live training has its place. You cannot replicate frictions that you 
that you that you have um, in 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 simulated training. I mean, just now that crazy craft that was driving all over the place. That is something you probably just wouldn't get in simulation. The physical, a soldier in a turret getting lost is something that we deal with on a day-to-day on -day basis. So the value of live training is to expose troops and commanders to the frictions that you come up against in real war. And this is an incredibly challenging terrain because, I mean, it's very, very easy to get lost out here, isn't it? Yeah, it is pretty easy. Um, and certainly... We're quite dependent nowadays on some of our electronic means, um, and so one of the things we're going to be experimenting with this year to make life even harder is to uh, jam on the GPS frequencies to see whether that has any impact on the abilities of the battle group to move and communicate. So that's something that we're doing for the first time this year. We've uh, we've run a trial. Uh, the system's safe to use. We're now just going to it, it, we're going to use that in the next phase, but not during the live fire training. The commander of Batas, Colonel Mark Elwood, speaking to Sean Grezchek in Canada. Now, it is 80 years since what we now know as Churchill's war rooms became operational. The Whitehall basement became the hub from which the Prime Minister directed the Second World War. For some time, they've been open to the public and looked after by the Imperial War Museum. Laura Macon Isherwood has been to look round and to speak to the curator, James Taylor. What is key to say about this place, it performed a hugely important role during the Second World War as a nerve centre of government and of planning for the war effort, um, particularly in 1940-41 during the, uh, the Blitz, the German bombing of London, and then again um, in 1944-45, just when victory seems assured, um, there are the V1 uh, flying bomb attacks and the V2 rockets coming down. So this is where the government sought refuge and did their planning. Um, but it, I should say it was also open, it was 24 hours a day. Information was being processed here and sent out to senior commanders and uh, politicians. And it was really the perfect location, so it's quite rudimentary, but it was halfway between Downing Street and Parliament, wasn't it? Was that a specific choice? It, it was. I mean, one of the things here, the government faced various choices at the outbreak of the Second World War or just before it. Um, do you take your government out into the wilds of Scotland or something like that? Well, does that look like leadership? And the answer to that would probably be no. Um, but what's interesting is that Churchill only really starts, when he becomes Prime Minister in May 1940, it takes him some time to come down and use this place. I mean, he actually says, he, he makes one of his first visits as Prime Minister in early May 1940 and says, these are the rooms from which I'll direct the war. Well, he doesn't start doing that until October when bombs fall near Downing Street and um, the, the imperative is that the government um, is able to do its work in safety. He didn't really like it down here, did he? Why was that? He didn't. Well, I mean, one of the things is that Churchill is not a very underground kind of person. Um, one of the things we know about him is that during air raids, um, he actually preferred to go up above here. Um, we're, we're right below what now is the Treasury, and he liked to stand and watch the air raids as they happened. So, no, he didn't like it. It's basic. It's not very Churchillian. Um, he much preferred um, his, his accommodation, much more luxurious, which was above here, and, of course, his home at Chartwell in Kent. Now, you talk then about him going up to watch yeah. the bombing raids, mm. which is kind of a daring thing to do, isn't it, if you can actually see bombs being dropped. It would give this impression that he's a very brave, kind of forward man, and yet on his chair there's those nail marks which have become so famous, which kind of says that he was a bit anxious. Yes, I mean, you know, you think of the position of responsibility he's in in 1940-41. Things look very, very bad for Britain. Um, I think it's, it's very important that we remember that there was no certainty of victory against Nazi Germany at all, and, and later Japan, of course. 
Um, so the meetings in here, there would have been quite a tense atmosphere. Um, church was sometimes got cross with those he didn't think were taking enough offensive action, um, rightly or wrongly, against the Germans. So you've got to think these, the weight on people's shoulders down here was absolutely enormous. James Taylor, curator of Churchill's War Rooms. Of course, Christopher, wasn't Churchill's War Room to start with. It was his, his, his predecessors. Is it the Churchill brand that takes people in there, do you think? It, it is only the Churchill brand that takes people in there. Uh, I find something fascinating about this, this, you know, this concept. This is the War Rooms. This is where he was. This is where everybody else was. And if you went up the 27 steps, you stopped and you looked and you saw the fires over the Docklands. This... Second World War, it was the first war that British people were attacked by an enemy since 1066. I mean, the t civilians, that mm. is. And that makes it an extraordinary place. This was the centre of the command and where you could look, look out. One night, 20,000 people, if you looked out of that window, 20,000 people had died in one night in the bombing. It can be very evocative. I've not been to Churchill's War Rooms, but I've been to the bunkers in Malta, and it is quite an experience. Christopher, thank you for your thoughts on that today. Thank you to our other guests, uh, Francis Tuser and Professor Michael Clark. If you have any thoughts on any of today's topics, do get in touch. You can always tweet us at BFBS SITRIP, and remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Search for BFBS SITRIP. I'm James Hurst. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.